Well, good morning, church family. If you have your Bibles, would you open them to the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew? We're going to continue in our sermon series on the Sermon of the Mount with a message entitled, Forgiveness, the Key to Receiving Grace. And in honor of the reading of God's Word, would you please stand? Jesus began to teach the disciples how to pray, and He says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Father, again, familiar words to us. Remind us, refresh us. Perhaps give us some new insight, Father, into a familiar text that we could take from this place and grow with and use in our daily walk that we might point others to your Son, Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Let me ask you this. What things do you have the most difficulty remembering? Birthdays? Have you gotten in trouble for forgetting the anniversary, guys? Or confusing a birthday? I did. I got a good excuse. Hers is on the 31st, and I always thought it was on the 30th. It's on the 30th, and I always thought it was the 31st. See? <laughs> I've already got it confused. How about directions? Yeah, directions. Scripture references, those are tough. But if I had to pick one thing above all, I think I would, I think I would say it's got to be names. It's got to be names. And just as an administrative aside, let me just say here that remembering names is as important as it is difficult. It was Dale Carnegie who said, A person's name is to that person the sweetest and most important sound in any language. And I think he's right. We all like to hear our name, and those who know these things tell us that there's actually a physiological response that is triggered when we hear someone call our name. And I've worked on remembering all your names. I promise I'm working on it. But I want you to know, uh, I hope I haven't hurt anybody's feelings. If I, if I didn't know your name or I asked you to repeat it for the second or sixth time, I'm, I'm really, just be patient with me. And I've even had people come to me and say, you know, I've got the same issue. Uh, Pastor, I've been here for a lot of years, and there's people whose names I don't know. And then I suggested to Scott and, and to Travis, maybe we have a, a name tag Sunday once a month or maybe we have a whole month where we all wear a name tag every Sunday just to help us to remember names something to think about so much has been written on the subject of forgiveness some wonderful books a bunch of sermons you've read them before innumerable articles and blogs there's just no shortage of, of research when it comes to what the Bible has to say about forgiveness and some of the men that I have drawn from from this passage include Dr. John MacArthur, Jerry Bridges, and recently deceased uh, Dr. Tim Keller. Let me ask you this morning, seriously now, how many of you have problems remembering things? So on a serious note, you didn't know that was rhetorical, did you? <laughs> on a serious note, past a certain age, most of us occasionally have problems with remembering stuff and 
There are serious and sad diseases that have impacted many of our families over the years. Diseases that have, have robbed our loved ones of precious memories and, and dear relationships. I just urge you, we all need to remember our brothers and sisters in prayer who are dealing with this issue right now, this very morning. On a lighter note, a couple I know who shall remain unnamed. Well, okay, let's call them Richard and Vicki. <laughs> they've recently noticed that they've been having problems remembering things, so they decided to go to the doctor and have him check them out just to make sure they were not having any kind of medical issues. And so they explained the problems they were having, and he said, no, there's nothing wrong with you mentally. That's why you know this is a made-up story, by the way. But <laughs> then he suggested, I was talking about me, not you. So he's just, he suggested that they start writing things down to help them remember things, and like we might do with a grocery list or a packing list if we're getting ready to go on a trip. And they thought that was a good idea. They thanked the good doctor, and they, and they went home. Late that night, they were watching television, and Richard got up to go to the kitchen from his recliner, and Vicki said, will you get me a bowl of ice cream? Richard said, fine, I'll get you a bowl of ice cream. And she said, don't you think you should write that down, like the doctor said, so you won't forget it. <laughs> no, he said, I can remember a bowl of ice cream. Well, listen, Vicki said, I'd really like some raspberries on top of that ice cream, but you better write that down. That's two things you'll forget. Richard said, no, I can remember. You want a bowl of ice cream with raspberries. Vicki says, well, listen, I'd like some whipped cream on top while I'm thinking about it. And that's three things. Now, you better write that down or you're going to forget what it is that I want. Now, Richard's getting a little bit more than irritated at this point. And he says, I don't need to write it down. I can remember it. And with that, he stormed off into the kitchen. About 20 minutes later, he comes back to the living room and handed Vicki a tuna fish sandwich. <laughs> she stared at the plate for a moment and said, you forgot my chips. <laughs> when I talk about memory issues, beloved, I'm not just talking about our tendency to have difficulty remembering things. There's another issue we have with our memories, and it's the one that prevents us from forgetting things. We're so good at not forgetting the times people have wronged us in some manner. I wonder if sometimes, uh, over the years I've wondered this, if, if sometimes people just don't enjoy holding on to grudges. I, I mean, it's like a dog with a bone. They just, they just won't let it go. And, and this can be the most destructive memory problem of all. Bitterness and resentment can sometimes last for years. I've seen it. You've seen it too. Even outliving the reason we felt we had for the resentment in the first place. And we delude ourselves. We delude ourselves into thinking that, that people won't notice. But the problem is that emotions like bitterness and anger and resentment have a way of coloring everything. It's like, a, it's, it's like a drop of food coloring in a glass of clear water. And we don't always feel convicted about these attitudes either. Hey, preacher, you just don't know. They've got it coming. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know how they made me feel. You don't know how mean-spirited they were toward me. Beloved, the irony for us as believers is that this way of thinking ignores the fact that if our Father in heaven treated us that way, if He held us to the same standard to which we often hold those who have offended us, 
Well, we'd all be in deep trouble, wouldn't we? Bottom line, when we refuse to let go of some old grudge, when we keep nurturing bitterness, we're in direct disobedience to our Father God. When we harbor hurts over wrongs that are long past without any movement toward forgiveness as God has commanded us, when we hold on to resentment rather than reach out with forgiveness, we are rebelling against God. And that results in an infection of sorts, one with which we must deal or ignore to our own peril. So what do we do when we don't feel like forgiving? What impact does our attitude toward those we feel have wronged us have on our relationship with our Father? Is there a way we can discover the forgiveness we so desperately need from others and above all from God? Jesus deals with our problem in the first verse of our text here, verse, first part of verse 12, when he tells us to, to pray, forgive us our debts. And of course, when Jesus uses the, words, the word debts here, he's talking about our sins. God made man that we might live to his glory. He's made it clear from the Ten Commandments through this very sermon that we're studying and beyond it to the Spirit-inspired writings of Paul and James and Peter and others, how we're to live. And, and when we sin, when we do anything that does not glorify our Father in heaven, we contract a debt with His sovereign, divine grace. We are all sinners, and therefore we all have debts. We all have debts because we're all sinners. So we all have a very real problem. And the Bible clearly teaches us that there's nothing we can offer God which would possibly pay our debt. Nothing we can do to atone for our sin because the debt, the price of our sin, is just too high. We're all sinners by nature and by choice. We, we inherited that from our ancestors, Adam and Eve. And that sin nature is what separates us from God. That's the supreme problem of humanity. It always has been, always will be. And all sinners are in the same boat. It doesn't matter if you and I violate some quote-unquote minor point of God's law or break one of the Ten Commandments. We are as guilty as if we had broken every commandment. What does James say? For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. And the real truth is that no one's sins are trivial. Paul writes, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All of us are born with an insatiable desire for sin. David writes, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Every one of us was at one time spiritually dead. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Reveling in sin, we were objects of God's wrath, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Destined for wrath, we were utterly without hope. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, having no hope and without God 
in the world, Paul writes in Ephesians 2. Beloved, that's all of us before we surrendered to Christ. God, on the other hand, is infinitely perfect, utterly holy, absolutely flawless, and thoroughly righteous. And His justice must be satisfied by punishment for every violation of His law. And the due penalty for our violations, our sins, our iniquity, the infinitely severe penalty is eternal damnation. The predicament of man is as bleak as it can be. Truly a state of absolute futility. Every person is a sinner caught under the looming sword of God's judgment. The situation seems impossible, intolerable, irredeemable, accountable as indeed we are, accountable to an all-holy God, accountable to an all-holy God whose justice cannot go unsatisfied. And the kicker is, as guilty sinners, we're powerless to do anything in and of ourselves to satisfy His justice. Left to our own devices, we are hopelessly doomed debtors. Beloved, we must understand this dilemma, our predicament, because it's only when we acknowledge the sinfulness of sin, only when we come to understand the, the, the doom, all of us who have been unfaithful to the service of the one who created them, only when we grasp that can we begin to celebrate the amazing grace that God offers through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. Tim Keller wrote, We only grasp the gospel when we understand, as Paul did, that we are the worst sinner we know. And if Jesus came to die for us, there is no one that He would not die for. Beloved, the dilemma that I just laid out for you regarding our sin and God's judgment creates a tremendous need on our part, an obvious need, the need for forgiveness. So, so here in the model prayer, understanding that we are indeed in debt over our heads... Jesus tells us the cry of our heart must be, forgive us our debts. And the glorious good news is that God does justify the ungodly. Our sin is covered. He refuses to take our misdeeds into account. We are declared righteous, completely forgiven of our sins by the only one who can forgive. Allow me to read the paraphrase of Romans 4, 5-8 from the message. If you're a hard worker and do a good job, deserve your pay, we don't call your wages a gift. But if you see that job, that the job is too big for you, that it's something only God can do, and you trust Him to do it, you could never do it for yourself no matter how hard and long you worked. Well, that trusting Him to do it is what gets you set right with God. By God. Sheer gift. What Paul is saying is that we cannot make God accept us because of something that, that we do. God accepts sinners only because they have faith in Him. Faith, he tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, that it is itself a gift from God. And notice what David doesn't say. David doesn't say, blessed are those who do not transgress, 
who through obedience avoids sin. He acknowledges he's a transgressor. He acknowledges that he's a sinner. And yet he knows he's still blessed. And why is that? Right? Because the Lord loves us so much, loved David so much, loves us so much, that the wrath we so justly deserve has been removed from us and poured out on Jesus. Jesus suffered for us, not because he had to, but because of his love for the Father and because of his love for us. Scripture tells us he surrendered to the will of the Father and drank the full cup of his wrath. As judge over all the earth, God should, must, and will judge us. The amazing thing is that he justifies us through the work of his very own son on the cross. Scottish theologian John Murray writes, God loved the objects of His wrath so much that He gave His own Son to the end that He by His blood should make provision for the removal of His wrath. Beloved, this is what makes the gospel such good news. Say the gospel is good news. Now someone's going to say, wait a minute, preacher. How can God grant such forgiveness without compromising his standard of justice. How can he justify sinners without rendering himself unjust? How can he forgive sinners without breaking his own word, having already sworn that he's going to punish every transgression? The answer is God has himself has made his son Jesus Christ the atonement for our sins. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Beloved, this means all of our rebellion, all of our despising of God and of His law, all of our grieving the Holy Spirit, all of our presuming upon His grace, all of our sin, all of it, say all of it, is charged to Christ. And it's important for us to understand that God does not forgive because He wants to be lenient with us. He forgives because His justice has been satisfied. R.C. Sproul wrote, There are only two ways God's justice can be satisfied with respect to your sin. Either you can satisfy it, or Christ satisfies it. If you can satisfy it by being banished from God's presence forever, or you can accept the satisfaction that Jesus Christ has made. The cross, beloved, is God's grace shining forth in all of its glory. It was there at Calvary, that God the Father commissioned God the Son to fully satisfy His justice so that you and I, beloved, sinners with a debt we could not pay, might have the debt paid in full and be saved. To the extent that you and I grasp in the depth of our being this great truth of God's forgiveness through our, of our sin through Jesus Christ to the, to the extent that we can grasp that we will be freed up to honestly and humbly face the ways that sin manifests itself in our lives the specific sins in our lives that's why it's so helpful to affirm every day as John Newton did I'm a great sinner but I have a great Savior Amen 
But listen, God has not only taken our sin and placed it in Christ's account, He has also credited our account with Christ's righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So Christ not only took our sin upon Himself, He also imputed His law-keeping, His righteousness to us. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, our sinfulness then is given to Him, and in the great exchange, as theologians call it, call it, He gives to us His perfect obedience to God's law, and then we are to live through it. So God the Father laid every sin on God the Son, who Himself had never sinned, so that we could be right with God. Again, amazingly good news, church family. That ought to cause you to rejoice. And listen, we don't need to try to hide or deny our sin and our guilt. We need to confess our sin. If we're struggling, if you're struggling this morning with some sin or habitual or otherwise, I urge you to confess that struggle. Confess that sin to our Father. Jesus tells us that men love the darkness because their deeds were evil. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we have the freedom to live in the light through confession and repentance. Confession is is the one great step toward the freedom that so many people are longing for in this world today. So I urge you, confess your sin to the Father, yes. Also, maybe confess your sin to a trusted friend or to one of your pastors and seek His grace, the supply of which will never run dry. Know that you are forgiven and that there's no condemnation for you. So we pray to the one who has set us free from sin and the guilt of sin, crying out to Him as David did, Have mercy on me, O God, according to Your steadfast love, according to Your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. The New Testament is also clear on this teaching. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And to confess sin... Beloved, is nothing more than agreeing with God concerning our sin. In other words, it's, we call sin what it is. Sin. We then bring it to God in humble repentance. And as we do, the Lord hears our prayers and He forgives us. Someone's going to say, Well, preacher, why does Jesus teach us here that we're supposed to seek God's forgiveness if He's already justified us? Aren't we praying for something that we already have? Church family, listen, as long as we live in this sinful world, as long as we have this own sinful nature, sinful tendencies warring in there against the spiritual nature, there is a sense. There's a sense in which Christians, though thoroughly cleansed by the washing of the regeneration, as Titus 3, 5 tells us, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. It is a sense that we need a daily cleansing from the effects of sin. Look at John 1 again, 1 John 1. 
And we see clearly there from the verb tenses, a literal rendering of verse 7 reads, The blood of Jesus, His Son, keeps cleansing us from all sin. Same thing with the verb tense in verse 9. Indicates continuous action. If we confess and go on confessing our sins, not the same sin, but the daily sin that we all commit. So, so you see, neither the confession nor, nor the cleansing spoken of in 1 John is a once-for-all-time faith to complete. Now, the question, why must we seek God's forgiveness if He's already granted us forgiveness? And justification, if that still bothers you, maybe this will help. Think of it like this. This is where Dr. MacArthur was such a big help. Divine forgiveness has two aspects. One is the judicial forgiveness that God grants us as a supreme judge. Christ, by virtue of His finished work at Calvary, purchased that forgiveness for us. We're freed by this forgiveness from the righteous wrath that we deserve. That's what we call justification. And at the moment of genuine profession of faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, it's complete. can never be taken away. It is a once-for-all-time forgiveness. The second aspect of forgiveness is the paternal forgiveness that God grants us as our Father. As our Father, He's grieved because of our sin. Remember, the forgiveness of justification takes care of judicial guilt. But it does not assuage his fatherly displeasure with our sin. Like any other earthly father, only perfectly, he disciplines us because he loves us. And he always does, us, does so in a redemptive way, in a personal way that always has our best interest in mind, even when we can't see that. And so when we come to verses that speak about the once-for-all forgiveness that is ours as blood-bought believers in Jesus Christ, understand the subject is judicial forgiveness. Verses like Ephesians 1-7, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. In Ephesians 4-32, and be kind to one another, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. But there are other passages of Scripture that deal with parental forgiveness from our text today. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive your trespasses. But if you do not forgive your trespasses, neither will your Heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. And Luke 6, 37, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Mark eleven twenty five, And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. MacArthur writes, The forgiveness we as Christians are supposed to seek in our daily walk is not pardon from an angry judge, but mercy from a grieved Father. We all have debt, we all have need. We all have a challenge. Last part of verse 12, as we have forgiven our debtors. Now, when we're talking about some kind of personal slight, some small thing or some unkind word that perhaps someone has spoken to us, it's really not that hard, is it, for us to get, forgive someone. We, we can find our way to do it. But, but what about if the offense is more serious? Right? Where, where do people find the strength 
to forgive when they discover that their spouse has cheated on them or that a friend has betrayed them or God forbid when a loved one has been killed because of someone else's negligence is it even humanly possible to forgive that kind of offense I grant you it may not be it may not seem humanly possible and it certainly doesn't lie within the power of fallen human nature alone to forgive those kind of things and really mean it but we've got to say, beloved, we've got to say that it is possible for redeemed people under the influence of the Holy Spirit's power to forgive even the most serious of offenses. And the key to this supernatural willingness to forgive others is believing that our Savior has already paid the price for our sins, and that means that He's paid the price of forgiveness for that brother or sister that we feel like has offended us. And two, He sent His Holy Spirit to live within us, empowering us to obey His Word, which gives us everything we need to deal with those folks, believer or unbeliever, who have caused us great injury. Paul's words we looked at earlier were, were meant for the ears of, of God's chosen one. They're the standard that we're expected to meet when it comes to forgiveness. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And also from Paul... Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So both verses give us the pattern for forgiveness, and you see it, don't you? As Jesus forgave us. Say that with me. As Jesus forgave us. We say, preacher, I've really blown it. And I've said some things. I've done some things that you just can't, can't put that toothpaste back in the tube. I, I, can't, I can't go back there. Beloved, just let me say, if you've expressed anger or you've done angry things in a relationship that you feel are beyond forgiveness, we need to yet go and seek the forgiveness of that person we've wounded by our angry words or angry deeds. Tim Keller wrote, True forgiveness seeks restored relationship, not enduring enmity. Paul tells us love keeps no record of wrongs. Let me ask you, do you tend to have a file somewhere back here in your memory where you just, you just save to the file things that are done wrong to you? So let me tell you, beloved, that is a straight path that leads to bitterness. We must learn to forgive as God has forgiven us. Let me illustrate it like this. You're familiar with the parable in Matthew 18, 21 through 35. We're going to read that in its tired in just a few moments. I'm looking at the clock because I know you guys are too. Somebody say, preach it, pre brother. Okay. All right. Okay. This one's a little longer, I grant you. Could have been two, probably. But let's review this parable real quickly. Of course, the, the, the occasion of the parable is Jesus questioning Jesus, is Peter questioning Jesus about the number of times they were obligated to extend forgiveness when somebody wrongs us. And Jesus' answer was basically as many times as he sins. But listen, the thing is, this parable isn't talking about the number of times we're to forgive, but about the basis of our forgiving one another. 
The parable tells about the king's servant, you know how it goes, who owed the king 10,000 talents. A talent was 6,000 denarii. The way the math works out, the servant owed roughly the equivalent of 200,000 years of going rate wages for the typical labor. Now, you adjust that for inflation, and that's about 6 to $8 billion in today's market. Now, Jesus occasionally used hyperbole to make a point, and this is a case of that. There's no way a servant to the king could have accumulated that huge of a debt. But we're going to see shortly why Jesus used such an immense sum of money. So we know the servant begged for patience on the part of the king. Give him time, give me time to repay the debt that I owe you. Again, purely wishful thinking on the servant's part because he couldn't. There's no way he could ever repay it. So the king took pity on him, forgave his debt. You know, he went away from the king's present. He finds a fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii. That's about a third of a year's wages, or by today's reckoning, about ten to $15,000. So this second servant, he also pleaded for forgiveness, for patience, but, but, the, but the servant who had just been forgiven $6 billion refused to, 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 refuse, to, refuse to, to submit to him this debt of ten dollars to $15,000 and had him thrown into prison. And the point of the parable is this enormous difference between the amount of the two debts, six to eight billion dollars on one hand, or ten to fifteen thousand dollars on the other hand. Now, ten to fifteen thousand dollars, that's that's not nothing, even in, in our day. But for the disciples who heard this parable directly that day, it would have meant a lot to them. All right, this would have been something significant to them. Again, a third of a year's wages. Here's the point. The first sum of money represents our spiritual and moral debt to God. In, in the master-servant world of that day, six to eight billion dollars would be hyperbole, a tremendous exaggeration for our benefit, so we might understand this. But in our relationship with God, it is a more accurate picture, though still falling, falls short of representing the debt that we have to God. That's because regardless of how moral and spiritual we think we've been, the debt of our sin is enormous. So what we need to see is that the, the significance of our sin is not measured against its severity, but against the infinite worth of God's glory. Again, let me illustrate it like this. Suppose I, you have this rug that you bought at, at Walmart, say, fairly inexpensive rug, and I spill black indelible ink on that rug that you bought. That's a bad thing, right? But let's say I spill the same ink on your expensive, imported Persian rug, the one you bought at that overpriced furniture store. That's really an altogether different level of bad, isn't it? The act is the same. The ink is the same. But the value of the two rugs is rem isn't remotely similar. The extent of the damage is determined not by the size of the ink blobs on the two rugs, but by the respective value of those rugs. This is the way to think of our sin against God. Every sin we commit, regardless of how insignificant it may seem to us, is an assault on His infinite, holy, and immeasurable glory. And the value of that expensive rug, even if it's millions of dollars, is nothing compared to the value of God's glory. And listen, we're the first servant, the one who owed him, was forgiven the debt of 
10,000 talents, six to eight billion dollars. Our debt to God is absolutely, totally unpayable. What happened to that billions of dollars the first servant owed? I mean, could the king just walk away from this and, and forget it? Weren't there any financial consequences for the king? It cost the king tremendously to forgive the servant's debt. The moment he forgave that debt, his personal net worth was reduced by 6 to $8 billion. Listen, it cost God dearly to forgive our sins. It cost Him the death of His Son. There's no price that can be put on that sacrifice. But still, God paid it. He paid it so that He could forgive you. He paid it so that He could forgive me, this enormous spiritual debt that we owed to Him. It's a message clear, beloved child of God. The moral debt of the offenses of the sinful words and actions committed against us cannot be compared to the personal debt that we owe to God. And this is the basis of of our forgiving one another, the enormity of God's forgiveness of us. We are to forgive because we have been forgiven so much. And unless and until we grasp that truth that we are the 10,000 talent debtor to God, the gazillion dollar debtor, we will always struggle with forgiving and more often than not fail to forgive those people who have offended us, who have hurt us. So Jesus is teaching here there's a direct relationship between whether we forgive and our receiving of forgiveness. And just to the, emphasize the point, he comes right back to the end of it, right back to it at the end of the prayer. It's almost like as he closes the prayer, he wants to make sure to drive home his teaching on the subject. So he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Think, think with me for a moment as we close. I want you to go to the cross and think of the cross of our Savior for just a moment. For I suggest to you there is no better example of this attitude of forgiveness that we are to have and was found in Jesus at Calvary. I further suggest to you that forgiveness was uppermost on his mind throughout the torture of the soldiers, throughout the mockery of the trial, throughout the ridicule and the thorns and the walk up Golgotha. Even as he was stretched out on that tree and nails were driven into his hands, and his feet throughout that whole ordeal of his crucifixion, forgiveness was on his mind. And even at what was surely the height of his glory, at the very moment when most victims of crucifixion would be crying out in a rage, in an anger, in a curse, he prayed not for relief, but forgiveness for his tormentors. Father, Forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Can, beloved, can you, can you understand that? Can you, can you wrap your mind around that this morning? Bishop J.C. Ryle wrote 
These words were probably spoken while our Lord was being nailed to the cross or as soon as the cross was reared up on an end. It is worthy of remark that as soon as the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, the great high priest began to intercede. Do you see the humility? Do you see the majesty? Do you see the glory? Christ is the sovereign, eternal, omnipotent God, the creator and of heaven and earth, and yet, and yet He did not threaten. He did not condemn. He did not pronounce doom on those who were torturing them. Instead, He prayed for them. Remember, Jesus had earlier taught, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Could the disciples have ever imagined that he meant to carry that to this extreme? Never, never, never has the world seen this kind of love. I mean, if anyone deserved a shot at revenge, it was Jesus. But he didn't take it. Instead, he died for them and for us. But before he died, he prayed asking God the Father, to forgive the very ones who were killing God the Son. How could He do that? I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that when I allow myself to think deeply about the time He spent on the cross, about what He endured there on my behalf, that grace, that humility, that blessed plea for forgiveness. When I contemplate those agonizing hours and how He endured them, for me, all of a sudden, my wounds, the offenses I think I have endured at the hands of others, they don't seem so painful. In fact, they seem trivial. They seem childish. Can, can we look at this scene on the cross and see the depth and genuineness of His passion and then justify our unwillingness to forgive any offense, any offense our neighbor might have committed against us? The answer is obvious. We must show mercy because we have received mercy. As those who have been forgiven much, we owe much, both to our Lord and to others. May the Lord grant us grace to follow in the footsteps of His mercy. Father, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lord, uh, as always, Your Word penetrates our hearts and minds, causes us to remember and recognize and regret the ways we failed to live up to the clear teaching and commands of Your Word. Father, we just acknowledge today that we have failed in so many areas when it comes to forgiveness. We failed to 
hold on to and keep at the forefront of our minds the way you forgave us and so easily remember the ways we are wronged by others. Father, thank you for a word that teaches us clearly how we are to respond instead. Thank you, Father, and those words are wholly inadequate for the example you gave us in your son at Calvary. Father, for those who are struggling here today with with besetting sin, with habitual sin, I pray your Holy Spirit will work in their lives, that that you will compel them to confession, Lord God, by the convicting power of your Holy Spirit and true repentance, Father. I pray for brothers to come alongside brothers and sisters to come alongside sisters and to strengthen us as we seek to walk in a way that's pleasing, to walk in personal holiness. Pray that we'd be a church, Father, that we keep that at the forefront of our teaching. Lord, I pray for those who are searching for a church home. They want a place where they can put down roots and grow. Father, they want a place that's faithful to the proclamation of your gospel, or your whole gospel, a place that has a heart for missions place that reveres your word and seeks to obey your word. Father, we know that this church and other churches, there are many churches in our area that fit that bill. And we just pray for those who are searching, that you would guide them in that process as we know you will, and that when they get a sense, Father, where that place is, they would make a commitment to be a part of a local church, be it Richland Baptist Church or another Bible-believing church in our community. We pray for your divine guidance and their submission to your guidance. Father, we pray for those here this morning for whom all this has been just a little too much. They're overwhelmed by all this talk of sin and debt and forgiveness and the lack of forgiveness, Father, that they are mired in their sin, yet they don't even realize it, but they know they're searching for something. This morning, as your Son has been proclaimed and lifted up on the cross, I pray their heart has been pierced, and that you are even now drawing them and wooing them to yourself and to a confession of faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for them. May they see that in this moment and be compelled to confess Him as Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.